This week on The Futurists, Katie King, Miss Metaverse. Ultimately, it's the same things we're going to be experiencing now, but connected directly to our brain. That's kind of where it's heading, is that it's going to be within us. Welcome back. We're on The Futurists. I'm Rob Tursick, your host. Now, normally... My co-host, Brett King, will be sitting here with me, but he's on the road today in Amsterdam en route to who knows where, globetrotting again. In his absence, we have a special guest, Katie King, also known as Miss Metaverse. Hi, Katie. Welcome to the show. Hey, Rob. Thank you for having me. Happy to have Happy you here. Happy to be here. <laughs> we're uh, we're, we're going to have a lot to talk about today because this topic is about social media and it appears that the entire social media universe is imploding right now as we as we record. Uh, let's start with the news. The news from the future this week is all about, wait for it, billionaires making boneheaded moves. So let's start with Mark Zuckerberg, of, uh, formerly of Facebook, now of Meta. Incredibly, Meta has gone through two record-breaking devastations this year. Uh, The first one was that the price of the stock dropped by a record amount in February when he announced, uh, when he did his earnings announcements, the stock lost 25% of its value in a day. Uh, Now he's outdone himself. Uh, The company's stock has now dropped a cumulative uh, 75% this year, based mostly on the amount of money that's being invested in the Metaverse project. Uh, Facebook Reality Labs has been, uh, or Meta's Reality Labs, has been the, su- the subject of some $15 billion of investment. Last year it was 10 this year is $15 billion, with a B, of investment. Uh, and the results haven't been very, very uh, promising. So finally, uh, Zuckerberg appears to have listened to investor feedback and slashed uh, 13% of the staff. 11,000 people lost their jobs at Facebook just in time for the holidays. Uh, Facebook lost uh, a total of $800 billion of value in one year, which is astounding. And that's not 800 million, that's 800 billion. And and Zuckerberg personally has lost 100 billion of his own fortune. But don't worry about him because he still has $38 billion in stock uh, to his name. So he'll be just fine. In other boneheaded billionaires, we have Sam Bankrupt Freed. Sorry, that's Sam Bankman Freed but probably better now known as Bankrupt Freed from formerly FTX Trading um, and uh, and its related firm, the the hedge fund Alameda Research. And this firm blew up in spectacular fashion and it has been dominating the news cycle because with it, it apparently has taken the entire crypto sector down. Uh, And so unfortunately the crypto world has been getting nothing but bad news this year, all of 2022, but they're really going out with a punch here because FTX blew up um, that $13 billion has been vaporized. It's gone. Many people lost their savings, so it's really hurting a lot of folks there. Uh, but what's astounding this week is the news that's coming out. There's a new CEO who's come in to kind of clean up the mess. And uh, a revelation was made yesterday. It's been covered by a lot of outlets, but it's really quite astonishing. Uh, here you have a $13 billion hedge fund and one of the largest exchanges, I think the second largest crypto exchange, uh, Neither organization had a chief financial officer. They're managing an awful lot of money. And as a result, they can't account for anything. Like literally there's $8 billion they cannot account for. Uh, There were some $372 million of unauthorized transfers on the day that they declared bankruptcy. Only 740 million of the holdings was secured with with, um, assets in cold storage. Uh, So the rest of that 13 billion, it seems to have been vaporized. Now they've uncovered the, some $4 billion of loans, including a billion dollars of loans to Sam Bankman-Fried himself. So this story is not done. It's going to be a developing story, I guarantee you, and there will be indictments that come. Um, but the big question is, how do you run a multi-billion dollar exchange with no chief financial officer? And the answer is badly. And they're evidence of that. That's FTX. The third story, and the one that we just is irresistible. We cannot resist the story is Twitter. Elon Musk charging into Twitter. Honestly, the motivation here is a mystery to most people. It's like, okay, yes, the guy has been a successful CEO. He is quite an extraordinary entrepreneur. And yes, he also happens to be a a power user of Twitter. Does that therefore mean he should go run the company? Well, he bought it. I think he, he kind of halfway through that transaction had changed his mind 
Uh, but the Delaware court system uh, eventually obliged him to make good on his promise. So he ended up buying Twitter at a price that was way beyond what it was worth. Um, promptly fired half the employees immediately, fired them by email uh, without any particular rhyme or reason, you know, including the, some of the people that were fired, included the people that controlled the, um, the badge access code so that employees could enter and leave the building. Uh, and they, they weren't able to get out of the building or the parking lot after that, the remaining employees, I should say. Now he's given an ultimatum to the rest of the staff uh, that by this end of this week, that they actually have to commit to working extraordinarily long hours right through the holiday season or take a severance package. And oh, surprise, spoiler alert, a lot of people are taking the severance package. And so critical development teams seem to be missing in action. Uh, and so the whole world now is waiting for Twitter to crash in some fashion. And yesterday there was some trouble on that service. Um, so I think the most boneheaded thing here, apart from him threatening thermonuclear war against advertisers, um, the most boneheaded thing of all in terms of this Twitter transition, taking Twitter private, is the idea of charging the best users money to use the platform. This goes against the current completely. This Twitter verified badge thing was so poorly handled. First, he kind of tweeted it out like a brain fart, like, hey, we'll charge you $20 a month. Turns out journalists don't want to pay $20 a month to share their leads and share the stories they're working on. So that landed with a thud. Then he said, we'll make it $8 a month. Uh, and that didn't work out so well either. And it ended up being the source of some humor where the people were kind of tweeting, uh, gee, the world's richest man is asking you for an $8 loan to keep his business going. And so that's embarrassing on its own. But the other thing is that this goes against the grain. At this point, most social platforms are chasing creators with billion-dollar creator funds, and they're willing to share revenue in advertising in many other ways. And they're very, being very creative about it because it's highly competitive to attract the best creators to the platform. Twitter's trying to go the opposite way. They're trying to charge people money to create on their platform. So with that in mind, Katie, welcome to the show. If you want to chime in by bashing away at any of those people, go for it. This is an opportunity to have some gleeful bashing. Oh, do I love some gleeful bashing? <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. Wow. Gee, it has been interesting to watch this downfall of the social media ecosystem everywhere from uh, Twitter, as you're mentioning before, doing the verified badge. Oh, geez. I mean, Elon, what is going on? First, we didn't know if he was going to get Twitter. You know, it was kind of iffy, wishy-washy. We didn't know what was going to happen. On one hand, we had so many of us, you know, the, the free speechers, let's just say, that I roll with, um, <laughs> to a certain extent, you know, um, you know, they felt this was really promising that Elon was going to come in, provide some level of balance and, you know, up things, make it more united in some kind of way, right? And um, I don't know. I mean, the first thing out the gate we're seeing is uh, this verified badge. And, uh, you know, it's very interesting to see. I I don't know how much it's going to work. Um, I, I think there is a lot of people for so long that, you know, dreamed of having the, the blue check mark next to their name uh, applied to do so and couldn't for many years. So maybe it could provide some people access that um, maybe they could buy into it if they weren't able to apply before for a badge. Maybe that's what they were trying to do. But, oh, no, it's not about that. It's about, you know, the people at the top and, and monetizing. And um, I think, you know, there's a big difference between what people are expecting to happen and kind of what's really happening. So, you know, it was funny. I was just reading something in the news before about Elon and they're saying, oh, uh, the name Elon has dropped from the baby names list because of this Twitter <laughs> ordeal. <laughs> oh, I'm sure he's heartbroken about that. And he does like babies. We know that. Well, mm -hmm. the, uh, yeah, the interesting thing about the, the charging $8 for the verified Twitter um, badge is is it's really just a drop in the bucket in terms of revenue. It doesn't add up to that much revenue uh, for the company. And so it's really peculiar that he would choose that as his first move on the chessboard. Uh, the company does need cash. He, it, because he took the company private, he, he saddled it with debt. Uh, now Twitter has about a billion dollars of interest payments that it now needs to make every year. And the company was not profitable or wasn't regularly profitable in the past. So it wasn't very clear how they were going to achieve that billion dollars, but this is not the way to do it. Um, if they charged the, you know, the verified badges to say, uh, you know, 25% of the users, that still wouldn't come close to covering that gap. So it's a very strange thing because undoubtedly it's driving people off the platform. Uh, right. People are going to going away and you see that every single day people that, you know, but also people in the news, 
there's a kind of attrition. And, and the big question is, is it, you know, is it going to be the world leaders that leave Twitter? Will it be the journalists that leave Twitter, the influencers? There's, you know, there's quite a few prominent folks on that platform. Um, yeah. But already we're seeing a kind of uh, um, exodus, at least of some users away from the platform. Some people because they don't like Elon or they don't like the way he's handled this. Some people because they don't like the fact that Twitter is a cesspool with you know tons of hate speech and a lot of aggression. Uh, and they're just looking for something different. What's your take on all that? Uh, you say you're interested in free speech, and I would love to hear your perspective on that. Yeah, I just think there needs to be a bit more balance. Um, you know, of course, there's conflicting opinions on to what free speech means, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, some people, as you said before, want to go on social and kind of uh, bully others, let's just say. Um, and yeah. that happens a lot. And it's a real problem, you know? Um, particularly on but, Twitter. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah, they managed to drive a lot of people who are uh, like so LGBTQ people uh, were driven off the platform because of the immense amounts of hate that they had to deal with. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, from my viewpoint, uh, free speech can be weaponized. And I think Twitter is a good example of how it can be weaponized. And for right. the people on the receiving end, um, at one point I spoke to an executive at uh, Google um, who was uh, responsible for safety. And she said, you have to understand that when you uh, when you go into a site like Twitter and you encounter that kind of uh, weaponized hate speech, she said, it's like walking into a football stadium with 30,000 people saying, you suck, you should die, you should kill yourself, we're going to kill you. She said, you know, the psychological damage there is is real. Uh, you, are, you can be harmed by that. Um, now, I know that there's a group, probably some folks who are listening to the show who will say, oh, there goes a snowflake, like here's somebody who's talking about how words can hurt your feelings and um and sticks and stones can break my bones but words will never hurt me yeah i get it um here's the thing about free speech the first amendment right to free speech pertains only to the united states government all right the united states government cannot uh, abridge uh, free speech it doesn't apply to private corporations private corporations that are trying to run a civil community or a thriving and vibrant community a constructive community where people can exchange ideas freely they're under absolutely no obligation to allow anybody to go bash other people or attack them. So, you know, that's my view on, on free speech. Tell me where you're at on the subject, because I think it's a lively topic. It's certainly at the heart of what Elon's proposing to do. But what it sounds like he's going to do is open up the site to trolls and to the worst kinds of folks. I, I mean, I don't know if, it, if anything is going to drive more people away. I have a real problem. You know, it's such a such a fine line, you know, to walk with with these things. I mean, uh, there should be the obvious any bullying, harassment, you know, seriously needs to be shut down because um, it's just not fair to people. Um, also, a lot of things that happen too, like in the free speech community, so to speak, um, you know, there's a lot of people that you know, are fearful and confused and get bad information and they'll run with it. I mean, I've experienced it personally. I, because of my uh, previous uh, last name, uh, Katie Aquino's my first marriage, um, you know, uh, I had a lot of people that were apparently religious or something. And because my last name was Aquino, it sounded like some evil general or something that they thought I was related to. And yeah, really, really bizarre. I mean, they were coming after my YouTube channel and writing hmm. all these wild comments and like, honestly, it shut me down for a while. I, yeah. it affected me and I'm, I'm a strong cookie, you know? Yeah. Um, so, you know, if it can get to someone like me, uh, I could see it really, it's harmful period, you know, words yeah. are energy and what we put out there matters. And, um, you know, there does need to be some control about things. Now, what Elon said he was going to do when he came into Twitter was to take on the botting, right? Yeah. Because the yeah. botting is a huge problem. Um, and the thing is, is like, is that really going to happen? And to what extent, you know, um, and how, to me, you know, I think he thought verified badges the was the way to deal with that. Right. But that didn't seem to work out so well. Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> You know, um, yeah, so, so that's a, that's the way to weaponize it. Right. So instead of it, just one angry crank in, in his mom's basement, you know, bashing away at people, that angry crank can now have an army of 30,000 bots who repeat it. And then that becomes a torrent of abuse. Uh, and, and so, yeah, for the people on the receiving end, that can be quite difficult to deal with. Mm. Well, there, there has been a, a uptick in the number of people migrating from Twitter to Mastodon. Let's talk a little bit about Mastodon because I think that's really relevant in this context. The whole point of Mastodon is that it was designed for people who don't want to get abused. 
Right. Uh, and so, you know, you can create your own server. Uh, that term gets confusing, but basically it's your own group uh, uh, on Mastodon. And, uh, and that group doesn't have to deal with anybody else. And it's quite easy right. to ban bad actors. And you can uh, basically just tune out the noise. Um, and as a result, Mastodon has become um, a refuge for people who just don't want to get hassled. And that includes all sorts of marginalized groups, but it includes a number of other people as well. Uh, I just joined Mastodon like everybody else who's leaving Twitter. I figured I'd check it out. And I noticed that there was a group that had a lot of journalists who I know. And I was like, oh, how cool that they're coming here. And there's not so much noise. It's not so cluttered with uh, with crap, you know, so you can actually have a reasonable conversation, which is what it's designed to do. Uh, interestingly, there's no algorithm, right? So there's no, there is a feed, but the feed is just a, a, a you know, sequential listing of the people that you follow. Chronological, and, finally. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Which a lot of people have been asking for, right? Because uh, the right. problem with the feed is you feel like you're being manipulated. You're being force fed stuff that the system wants you to look at, however real that might be. Uh, talk to me a little bit about your take on that, because I'm interested to hear what you think of these alternatives to Twitter. Oh, wow. You know, I, I've always been a fan of the alt platforms. Uh, mm -hmm. I would say my alt platform journey actually began maybe around uh, YouTube and the crackdown with the censorship. Uh, that was around maybe 2015. Um, and I noticed that a lot of channels that I watched you know, they, they weren't saying anything bad, but they were just kind of a little out there. I mean, I watch everything, you know, obviously being into sci-fi and blah, 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 blah. Like some people can get into some interesting topics, but wasn't anything hateful or, um, you know, they would lean, you know, give credit to having this channel taken down, for example. But um, I noticed a lot of the channels I was watching were um, having their channels taken down. Um, and if they weren't taken down, then they were being heavily restricted as to uh, how many views and, and what type of, uh, you know, feedback they were getting, how much views they were getting overall. Now, because of that and seeing this huge change in YouTube and a lot of creators leaving, this uh, allowed me to start checking out some of the other alt platforms. So I started watching more uh, content on BitChute, Odyssey, and then, you know, also now there's uh, Rumble and all these other uh, alt video platforms, which they're, they are they are good sometimes because, you know what, honestly, on some of the main platforms, it could be hard to find creators that you like because of these issues. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. they could they could be, uh, you know, blacklisted or, um, you know, censored in some ways. And um, it could not even be their fault, just a misunderstanding. And that happens. I mean, YouTube is a... It's a massive, massive ordeal. I can only imagine trying to keep up with all that, you know, at, with their teams over there behind the scenes. So uh, obviously there's going to be some uh, growing pains with that. And I think that uh, now a lot has changed with YouTube. However, um, as the time has gone out, we've seen way more action on these old platforms. Now, particularly with Twitter, you're right. There's now Mastodon, which I just signed up for as well. Very excited about. And uh, yes, I, I like the idea of servers. I like the idea of having more of a community, a chronological timeline. Mwah! You know, so <laughs> I have faith. I have faith. So that's what it seems like to me that that um, these these gigantic platforms that we've had for the last 10 years or more, uh, you know, actually Facebook's 18 years old now. Like it's it's old. And, um, and it's sort of where everybody is, right? There's almost 3 billion people signed up for it. Um, not using it, but, you know, that, that accounts that they've created uh, um, cumulatively. Uh, so those are the platforms where everybody is, Twitter and Facebook. And there's a sense, there was a sense that you want to be on the platform where everyone is because that's where you can reach the most people. And this kind of uh, attention economy dynamic emerged where uh, people, you know, competed really for attention. Uh, and that bred some really bad behavior. Uh, for instance, you know, on Twitter in particular, in an attention economy, the people who are good at getting attention are the most dysfunctional people on the planet. I don't need to name who they are, though one of them was the president of the United States. But basically, it rewarded the worst possible behavior. So you had these people who were certainly getting a lot of attention, but uh, you know, they were getting it because of their narcissistic and bad behavior. It's also true, I think, to some extent of YouTube stars as well, people like Jake Paul, you know, very controversial because there's sort of no, there's no bottom line. Like the guy will go lower than you can possibly imagine in order to get a view or to get a click. 
Uh, and it works. Um, but that's what an attention economy gives you is uh, patholog pathological narcissism. And I think we've seen Race some examples. Race to the bottom. That. Yeah, that's quite right. <laughs> so so now, now these social platforms seem to be fragmenting and fragmenting into a way that, that's interesting in the sense that it won't have the same economics in terms of mass reach because you'll be on a platform where you can't reach everybody. By, by design, that's how Mastodon works, right? You, you're only going to reach the people who follow you and you have to figure out how to get those people to find you because there's no feed, there's no algorithm. Uh, some of the other other services that are, have become uh, really successful, but kind of in a, under the radar, I think, um, you know, Discord is is growing in and not just in popularity, but growing in importance because it's where everything NFT is happening, and increasingly a lot of the crypto community is there. Crypto used to happen a lot on Telegram as well, but the communities around NFT I've noticed on Discord are are just thriving and booming, but they're niche communities, right? They're big, they may be big niches, uh, but this is not about broadcasting to this huge number of people. Instead, it's about cultivating deep connections with a group of people that you actually kind of know, uh, where you have some kind of connection to them. And that's quite different from the attention economics that we got on the big platforms. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, part of my rise as a futurist was through Facebook. Facebook was massively important to my career. I mean, I can meet so many great connections, fellow futurists in the community, people in tech. I've met people that are working on BCI uh, brain computer interfaces, all of that. And, uh, you know, I really I, at one point, I mean, posts would get thousands of likes. I'd be building a community and all of that just really started to trail off. And now these days, I don't even use, I barely use Facebook, mm. maybe just messenger to talk to people, family and friends and stuff here and there, uh, people in the community here and there. But uh, yeah, just really excited about these alt platforms where it's heading, you know, it's a fresh start, new beginning, so to speak. Right. And uh, I think we're and you're, you're a fan of Telegram, right? Tell me about your experience on Telegram. Love Telegram. Telegram, I know people anywhere from yoga teachers to authors that are using Telegram now. Now, what's interesting is that when Telegram first started getting rolling, um, particularly uh, sort of like the underground of uh, the the alt platform world, sort of, right? It's, uh, oh, Telegram, you know, isn't that just for, you know, chatting or uh, you know, encrypted messages or something? And no, no, it's actually evolved into a, sort of like a ongoing chat social media platform. It, the way it works is that you you basically, uh, as a creator, you could build a channel and it's just one ongoing chat and you can arrange it where you have a chat. Uh, your members can continue talking with each other um, while you post your own content, your new videos. Um, it's a good way to keep in touch and sort of uh, have a more personalized following as well. It's, uh, it's definitely an option out there and I, I've been exploring it myself. I'm considering starting my own Telegram channel as well. Mm -hmm. It's also, um, I think you mentioned it's uh, it's persistent. It's it's not evanescent the way some flat platforms like Snap was famously, you know, you, your messages disappeared after a period of time. Um, so it's right. uh, it's one more stuff stays. So you don't have to feel this compulsive urge to check it out constantly every time there's a notification that dings, uh, it pulls you away from your workflow. Uh, you can yeah. you can check it periodically and you won't miss anything. Yeah. And there's also one more last great feature is that um, if there is a lot of content on that timeline, you know, in the chat, so to speak, um, and you miss out on it, you press the button at the bottom. It's like an arrow pointing down. It'll just rapidly bring you to the latest message. So you skip over all the stuff you missed, hmm. you know, uh, which cool. I kind of like. Yeah, because yeah. you're right. Uh, with these platforms, there's a lot of pressure to be keeping up with things and feeling like you have to, oh, I got to go back and read all this stuff. And, um, you know, I, I think these all platforms are exploring new ways that we can kind of get around these issues. Cool. Well, in a moment, we'll go into uh, the future of social platforms. But before we do that, uh, I want to do our, our lightning round. Now, normally this is something that Brett would do, but he's traveling. So I get the honors today of asking you to do the lightning round. So lightning round of questions. Uh, first, let's start with name your first experience with sci-fi. It could be a movie or a book or something else that really got you excited about the future. Oh, wow. You know, I have to say, like, it, I've always been a futurist at heart since I was 
you know, a kid. And uh, I've been inspired by everything. I mean, going to Tomorrowland at Disney World and mm. being like, wow, you know, this is the future, the carousel of progress and all of that. You know, I love that as a kid. And then, you know, as I got older, uh, 1999 is when the Matrix movie came out and that movie rocked my world. I was like, wow, this makes so much sense, you know? I mean, um, and just about technology and where it's heading and wow, I mean, yes, very dystopian, but, you know, for the time, I think all of us, you know, people that aren't into sci-fi were like, wow, this movie's amazing, like uh, really thought-provoking. So um, yes, and also Michio Kaku, um, you know, his his uh, earlier works, he was in documentaries. There's a great documentary around 2007 that I watched that really inspired me. Um, yeah, a lot of documentaries, movies, uh, oh, anywhere you, from- <laughs> You're an avid, you're an avid enthusiast for futurist materials. You, you've been influenced by it your whole life. So that Guilty. leads to the next question here. Next question in the lightning round is name a futurist who has personally inspired you? Well, my first mentor was futurist Glenn Heemstra, and uh, he was the original owner of futurist.com. I believe it's now uh, between maybe Glenn and futurist uh, Nicholas Badminton, who Nick is another friend of mine. Uh, haven't spoken in a while, but uh, yeah, awesome people, great futurists, super, super talented. They all bring their own unique styles um, as far as forecasting and speaking on the future. And uh, yeah, Glenn was uh, my first mentor and it was very important mm -hmm. to me. It's how I came out as a professional futurist. Cool. Can you tell me about a particular forecast or prediction that inspired you? Oh, yeah. Ray Kurzweil and the singularity. Hmm. You know, I mean, 2045, so much, uh, so, so many projects that have uh, looked forward to 2045 as a year where we merge human consciousness with AI or, you know, we have this merging event happening. And uh, yes, Ray Kurzweil definitely uh, inspired me. Super. Okay. Well, that's uh, that's it for the lightning round. You're listening to The Futurist with my guest, Katie King. I'm Rob Tursick. Our co-host, Brett King, is on the road. We're going to take a short break and we'll be back. Stay tuned because in the second half, we're going to talk about the future of social media. Provoke Media is proud to sponsor, produce, and support The Futurist podcast. Provoke.fm is a global podcast network and content creation company with the world's leading fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. And of course, it's spin-off podcasts, Breaking Banks Europe, Breaking Banks Asia Pacific, and the Fintech Five. But we also produce the official Finnovate podcast, Tech on Reg, Emerge Everywhere, the podcast of the Financial Health Network, and Next Gen Banker. For information about all our podcasts, go to provoke.fm or check out Breaking Banks, the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show. Welcome back. You're listening to The Futurists. I'm Rob Terzik. My co-host, Brett King, is traveling this week. And our guest is Miss Metaverse, Katie King, talking about the future of social media. And before we jump back into things, I want to talk a little bit about a new player on the scene. Not that new, but now becoming really very important. I'm referring to none other than TikTok. And TikTok's an interesting company in a couple of respects. One is it's not quite a social media company. It's not quite a video company. It's something in between the two. TikTok famously hit the scene in 2018. Uh, it's a combination of two apps from China, one called Musical.ly, which made it possible for people to do lip syncing, and one called Dian, which is, uh, a, uh, is basically the Chinese version of TikTok, the prototype of TikTok. Um, the, the app gained traction very, very quickly uh, because it was extremely easy for young people to use and make good videos and be creative and fun. And if you remember back in those days, uh, other social media platforms had become quite political, uh, partly because of the politicians that were using them and partly because of this hate dynamic that we spoke about, spoke about in the first half. And TikTok seemed to be a refuge from that. Uh, so TikTok has been growing incredibly fast. It is the fastest growing social platform. Uh, it got to a billion users faster than any other, uh, all the other ones that we mentioned earlier in the show. Um, it has been the, uh, the top app for about two years. It's been the top grossing app. Um, it has uh, been the most downloaded app for the last five quarters. Ad revenue for TikTok tripled in 2021 and it tripled again this year in 2022. Uh, so it's now generating more revenue in advertising than Twitter and Snap combined. 
It's still nowhere near the size of Facebook, but what's important is it's clearly devouring a part of Facebook's business. And it really has Facebook on the run, unlike any other social platform. So, so far for the last 18 years, Facebook has been able to fend off all threats or acquire them, uh, things like Instagram and WhatsApp, uh, simply, you know, it's, it's strategy, it's a defensive strategy. It was to buy the thing that was going to kill it next. Uh, but TikTok seems like it's coming on strong and that's not all. Uh, TikTok also is introducing a number of other features. Uh, there's a TikTok music app that's been rumored for a long time. Uh, the owner company, the parent company, ByteDance already owns a music app that they've been running in Brazil and Indonesia, Malaysia. And now it looks like they're registering that uh, TikTok music uh, name as a copyright and as a social media handle in many countries around the world, including the US. Uh, rumor is it, rumor has it that they've been negotiating with the record labels for some time. So we'll start to see them integrate a music app in the near future. But that's not all. TikTok also is eroding the profit of, of Netflix, interestingly. Um, users can pay money on TikTok. You can gift money to people that you're a fan of. So if there's a creator that you like, you can send them a gift. And as it turns out, um, streaming video platforms like uh, Netflix um, are the number one subscription app for most gen most people, most demographics. But with this one exception, teenagers, uh, it's not the case. With teenagers, they are giving more money to TikTok performers. Uh, so it's actually starting to uh, affect the future even of, of Netflix. So this app has been extraordinary in terms of its impact. Um, and now uh, parent company ByteDance is also getting into VR. They bought Pico. They're uh, rumored to be building their own version of a metaverse. So they're clearly coming after Facebook on every front or meta, I should say, on every front. Uh, so that is a little bit about the rapid growth of TikTok. But there's another part of the story which is that TikTok is viewed as a national security threat. I'm not making this up. A number of senators, including Senator Josh Hawley, have called for uh, getting, getting rid of TikTok altogether, banning the app altogether. And indeed, the United States Army and Navy have banned it. You're not allowed to use it. Uh, the, the app does gather an awful lot of data. Uh, it collects a tremendous, it's, it's one of the most intrusive apps. So it is viewed as kind of a data gathering tool. And because it's Chinese, TikTok is now falling into this, uh, this contentious dynamic between the United States and the Chinese government. Um, and there's some concern about whether TikTok is a national security risk. I'm not making this up. There's a negotiation that's been going on since the Trump administration between the U.S. government and TikTok about how to proceed. And TikTok has a big initiative underway called Project Texas, where they will keep all U.S. user data on Oracle servers in Texas, that's uh, their bid to comply with US uh, with the requirements the US is setting forth. However, there is one big concern, which is that in uh, the Chinese government has an edict that all apps must surrender information if they demand it. And so it's very clear that TikTok will deliver information uh, to the Chinese government. And so some, view, some people view that as a national security hazard or national security risk. And the last piece about TikTok is that it can also be a tool or an instrument for the dissemination of propaganda. Now, there's some irony here because the organization that's making that claim the loudest is Facebook. And let's not forget, just a year ago, Francis Haugen was on Capitol Hill in, in Washington uh, revealing insider information about Facebook as a tool for the dissemination of propaganda. So there's a little bit of the pot calling the kettle black. But nevertheless, uh, there is some evidence that, that uh, TikTok has been used this way um, in Kenya and in other nations around the world, uh, in, in Kenya, Taiwan, and the list is quite long. So there's some fear that TikTok could be used as a way to you know, kind of uh, pollute the minds and persuade people who are using it. So that's TikTok. Uh, what's interesting about them is it's a video app. It's not a social media app in the sense that you don't follow friends. It's not about your friends and what they're talking about. There is an algorithm, it's algor algorithmic video. It's incredibly addictive. Uh, in fact, that's the reason I would not use it or I would recommend deleting it is because you will find yourself absorbed so much by the pure addictive nature of that algorithm. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about that algorithmic media versus social media, because that's clearly one of the big trends that's coming. Uh, we, we hear about, you know, the Facebook algorithm, we hear about the Twitter algorithm and how it surfaces content. But a moment ago, we were just talking about Mastodon, which by design is non-algorithmic, doesn't have an algorithm that recommends stuff. There is a feed, it's just a chronological feed of the people that you follow, but no one's pushing stuff at you. Talk to me a little bit about the algorithm. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, you know, TikTok really, really uh, started climbing in, in, you know, for the creator community. 
uh, in the recent few years, maybe the past two years, especially, I would say, um, I know I've seen a ton of creators go over to TikTok and make TikTok their sole focus, which made yeah. me really surprised. Cause I, you know, my cousin, for example, she's a, she's a yoga teacher and, uh, you know, very spiritual and she wanted to start a YouTube channel and, um, she ended up doing TikTok instead. And I said, well, what, what happened to the YouTube channel? You know, why don't you do a YouTube, a YouTube instead, you know? And she goes, no, Katie, she's, everyone's on, on TikTok's where it's at you know, for you page, the algorithm. And yeah, I mean, her posts have gone viral, uh, you know, on the for you page on TikTok and all that. And, uh, you know, I, I see, I know quite a few of creators that have found a lot of success on TikTok where they were, would have never have had so much success on other platforms for whatever reason. And, um, so I think there's a lot more opportunity for creators on TikTok for, uh, for several reasons. And, you know, it is very addictive and that is a, that is an issue. It's the, the short form content constantly scrolling and, uh, yes, everything is just given to you based on what you've liked before. Or, or what you discover and, and whatnot. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I see it staying and I see it growing. It's definitely a huge com competitor, uh, to, to meta for sure. And, um, you know, a, a lot of the live streaming, uh, is, you know, that that's started going as well. And, yeah, you know, they're really, really building out TikTok. That's true. Right. Yeah. So TikTok is innovating across the board. I mean, they're literally turning on a service that competes with just about every, every um, mainstream service. And they're also innovating in advertising. You know, they have a marketplace where they'll put creators directly in touch with advertisers. And so creators can create kind of viral campaigns on behalf of advertisers and they put them in. And so they've created this marketplace, which I think is quite innovative. And, and one observation I would make parenthetically is there hasn't been that much innovation in US social media. If you think about it, like most of the innovation in the past five years has been around moderation tools, hate speech, uh, groups and so forth. But none of this stuff really moves the needle in terms of getting people excited in a great big way. Um, and I would say a lot of the innovation that's happened has been around monetization, um, monetizing the audience. If you were to look, so for instance, at Facebook today, you'll find that more than half the page, if you're looking at a web browser, more than half the page is advertising related. Like very little of it is mm -hmm. content. Um, uh, and so so TikTok has been innovative in, in many respects that serve creators. Uh, the tools are so easy to use. It's so easy to make a funny video. It's so easy to be cool on TikTok. And they can, you know, you can, you can, you can provide you with like a, a great soundtrack, which I think says a lot. You know, don't forget that's like, that's a kind of the core of this. Uh, this idea that you can be a pop culture star by remixing somebody else's music. And it's also a platform that's broken a bunch of artists, uh, most notably Little Nas X, who was unknown. You know, he was an unsigned artist uh, in February 2019 when he posted Old Town Road that immediately went viral. And very shortly after that, he got signed. And very shortly after that, he teamed up with Billy Ray Cyrus to do the remix version, which sold, which was in the top 10 for 18 weeks, I think. It's a, yeah. So, you know, really a quick story from like, you know, nowhere to superstar. Yeah. So it's a, it's a platform that creates create hits. I think that their strategy for launching a music service alongside it makes a ton of sense because that's so core to the platform. And what we don't see with the other social platforms is this idea of an integrated suite of apps, um, which I think is quite interesting, right? Uh, you know, in China, you've got... Um, super apps like WeChat, which started out with text messaging and payments. But with, if you have those two things, you can do a lot more. And gradually that led to all sorts of other kinds of programs, games, shopping, uh, other, kinds of, other kinds of entertainment, and a way to pay for things in the real world. Um, yeah. And as a result, those apps started to integrate all sorts of other features. You can think of it as like an app as a platform for other apps. Um, and that idea of a super app isn't limited to China. That's also happening now in other parts of Southeast Asia and in India and increasingly in Africa. But weirdly, it hasn't happened in the, in the United States. And uh, Elon Musk has noted this, right? He has said several times now he wants to turn Twitter into a super app for the U.S. Uh, so he wants to add on, in addition to you know, the short text messaging or microblogging at Twitter, he wants to add in payments, which he knows quite a bit about because of his time at PayPal and X.com before that. Uh, so he could bolt messaging together with with payments um, and a music service. You can start to see, you can start to see a path there forward for Twitter, but that's going to require an engineering team that he no longer has uh, and money that he hasn't got uh, to invest unless he wants to dig a deeper hole for himself. Meanwhile, 
TikTok's already doing it. It's already happening. Like, you know, the, the super app from China is here and it's TikTok. Right. It is indeed. I mean, I think TikTok has a tremendous amount of uh, potential. And I know several creators in the tech community that are particularly focused on VR. And they were coming to me and saying, hey, have you heard about, uh, you know, Pico and what they're doing? And they're going to bring Pico, uh, you know, under the same company, right? It's ByteDance, Pico, TikTok, same thing. So I think, you know, talking about the future of social media is that, you know, there's going to be an even, an even greater sphere of influence once you start bringing in uh, VR, uh, AR, you know, augmented reality, virtual reality, all these other technologies together where, um, you know, the opportunities are really going to be endless. You can just imagine. Well, well tell me more about that. Cause I think one of the operating assumptions, certainly at Meta and clearly at ByteDance is the idea that there's a progression from connecting people together on a social platform and then adding more media to that platform. And then somehow magically, we're all gonna start to put on head-mounted displays and go into VR. And yet that hasn't worked out so well for Facebook, right? So I think everyone agrees now that uh, Facebook's, you know, Horizons world is, is has fallen flat. It really doesn't resonate with people. There's uh, the maximum number of users they had was 200,000. I think it's down from that figure now. Their goal was supposed to be a half a million this year of users. They're not even at half that. They don't expect to be. <laughs> and also, the people who look at it, most of them don't come back. Uh, so it hasn't worked out so well. Talk to me a little bit about that progression from social media to VR. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I've noticed a lot about uh, this progression of social media to VR and just a lot of hype, so much hype. I mean, I I remember even magically back in 2014, you know, it's supposed to be uh, more of augmented reality, right? Um, Or mixed realities for one, but, you know, they made it look so beautiful and amazing. It was going to be mind blowing. And then things just kind of started falling apart and just not really materializing. Now, don't get me wrong. I love Oculus, right? I think that I have a Oculus uh, Quest 2 or Meta Quest 2, as it's called now, (laughs) Um, you know, but uh, it's, it is a great thing to experience. I mean, I've had some pretty interesting experiences in VR. You do connect in a way. It's, it's sort of like a, that spooky action at a distance type of thing. It's like you, you're yeah. meeting someone and it's it's not the same as just connecting on a social media platform. It's different no, it's, in VR. And it's more it's, dreamlike. You feel like you experienced it. I agree. I am right. a huge fan as well. Like I love Oculus oh, Quest. Sorry, Meta, Meta Quest. Uh, <laughs> I love it myself. It's it's the best hardware. Like, you know, as much as we get, we get a kick out of Bash and Facebook and as much as Zuckerberg deserves it, the reality is his billions and billions and billions of dollars of investment, it actually led to the best hardware that's out there right now. How does right, Pico but, compare? Is Pico any good? You know, um, I've heard that Pico has a lot of potential, but mm-hmm. as far as the user base, I don't really quite see any of that yet. Mm-hmm. But I'm hearing right now, I believe that they're uh, reaching out to a lot of uh, VR inf- uh, creators and uh, influencers right now to, to have them start uh, familiarizing themselves because I think the jump off is coming with this. I believe mm-hmm. that um, Pico is going to is gearing up to be able to really come out the gate to contend with, uh, you know, with uh, Meta. Now, you know, going back to Horizon Worlds, right? Horizon Worlds, wow, so much, uh, you know, so much hype. I mean, I remember that the video that came out maybe, what was that, last November, right? You know, With the Eiffel Tower? Yeah. Yeah, oh my God. What a face pump. I'm not, honestly, seriously, how could they release that? No, not something no he, Zuckerberg needs someone near him to whisper in his ear and say, dude, don't go with that. Like you know, he needs an editor because honestly, that stuff is embarrassing. Even this week, they just released another video and it's, it's so, oh, there was a video that just came out last night about um, Godzilla stepping on a Wendy's burger joint or something. And it was the dumbest thing I've ever seen. It was like a news report from inside of uh, Horizon Worlds. Mostly the 3D is not good. You know, we have an audience of about 3 billion people who are playing video games and they've been conditioned to 3D worlds that are quite good, right? The state of play with a game engine like Unreal 5 is cinematic quality, real-time 3D. It's that good. Beautiful. And so that's the expectation, right? And and what Facebook's doing, what Meta is doing with Horizon Worlds is they're falling way below that expectation. I get it. It's hard because you have to render that world simultaneously for multiple users. And that's a really hard scaling problem. But the fact is, the end result just feels lame compared to a good video game. And there's no way around that. They need to address that issue, I think. Way too cartoony, way too cheesy, like 
No, no. I mean, when I saw it, like, like, with no legs, you're floating around like some sort of like angel <laughs> or something. It's creepy and weird. Yes, very much so. I, I so is this the future? Are we going to live in a creepy and weird social network that's 3D? Like, is that do we have to put on a head mounted display to talk to our friends? No, we don't. No, we don't. And listen, just for the record, I called myself Miss Metaverse way before the metaverse actually became a thing. Okay. So just putting that out there. But uh yeah, oh, it's hard to say. I, I still believe in VR and AR and all that. You know, I know AR is gonna go somewhere for sure, but you know, VR, it's an acquired taste. And here's another thing: not everyone can put the headset on and be okay. You right. know, there's people that get really sick from it. Yeah. I'm not one of those people. I could stay in VR for quite a long time. Um, but, you know, there are people that, you know, just it's really uncomfortable for them. So there are yeah. growing pains here. Yeah, it's a, and, it's a user uh, design problem. I mean, it's a design problem if, if you have a product that makes 10% of your users seasick. Like, they need to figure <laughs> that out. They're working on it. But but tell me, here, tell me honestly, how often do you use your Oculus Quest or your Meta Quest? How often do you use it, like, per month? Do you really want to know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> rarely and yeah. that's you know i mean if yeah, I'm the average user rarely, uses it the average user uses it twice a month like it's basically a paperweight or a doorstop that gathers dust and occasionally you can go into a vr world so we haven't really developed a habit for vr <laughs> oh well you've got right at least there. it's there look and it's plugged in so you're charging it up good for you you can you can put it on after the show uh, yeah. but you, we haven't really developed a habit where we do have a social media habit and we have a mobile phone habit and the two grew up together right we can say that that social media got entrenched there were tons of social platforms before smartphones but the smartphone and the social media it kind of fit together and they, they amplified each other and became this, this global habit we just don't have that habit yet of putting a thing on our head um you know and, and anyone who's got a hairstyle isn't going to want to put a thing on their head so this isn't really the most you know, there's a reason why they always show pictures of bald dudes when they show people using head-mounted displays because the hairstyle doesn't really matter for them i can't imagine people wearing the thing all day long but over time devices are going to get smaller cheaper lighter faster better and so forth that might take 10 years and I think that's a key point. Um, Zuckerberg has been pretty consistent in saying that. He's been telegraphing that it's going to take five to 10 years before we get to a form factor that works. Meanwhile, other companies are coming forward now with uh, long-rumored augmented reality displays, notably Apple. What do you know about Apple reality? Oh, wow. Yes. I mean, so much uh, anticipation regarding the uh, Apple VR uh, that's coming. And I, I think they're going to do a wonderful job from what I hear. I hear that the way they're designing the new headset is going to be lighter um, than the Oculus. They, they're trying to really like step it up in order to, uh, you know, beat out the competition. So I'm curious to see how it, how it, uh, how it is when it comes out, you know, however, but you know, this is Apple, not everyone's an Apple user. Right. Yeah. And I, the thing is with, with Oculus is that it doesn't matter if you're Apple or Android or whatever it's, you know, you, you ever, anyone can use it if you're in within that ecosystem. Yeah, that's um, true. Almost certainly the Apple device is going to be connected to the smartphone because everything Apple does is, you know, all their new devices are just uh, accessories that reinforce the value of the iPhone because that's their franchise and they're not going to do anything to, to take away from that. So it's unlikely that you'll have uh, an AR headset. And, and also, the, you know, the heavy-duty processing and the network uh, connection is all going to come from the phone, right? Because that, that's where you've got the power to do all that stuff. That's why they put ultra-wideband in, in the new generation of Apple phones so they can connect to some other devices and stream that data fast so that means you'll have a lighter weight headset, probably some eyeglass form factor, although nobody really knows. We've, we've seen these artist conceptions of what Apple's reality glasses are gonna look like, but we don't really know what they have in mind. And that's been the most anticipated thing in this field now for two years running. Everyone knows Apple's working on it. No one's seen anything. Right, yeah, I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, how will the AR work versus the VR headsets, right? I mean, in terms of comfortability, in terms of uh, everyday usage, uh, yeah. you know, people, I, I believe Apple went into the AR space, particularly because it has more of a, a, a usage ability than, uh, say, virtual reality solely, right? Because you can go out into the world with it. You're on the go. It, it goes with the phone. Yeah, uh, but there you're really vulnerable to 5G coverage, right? So if you don't have 5G for the fast network connection, Activity, then you're going to get a lag and that's going to kill the illusion. That's a gigantic issue for, for augmented reality. 
Uh, you know, and the, and the folks at Magic League, you mentioned a moment ago, they ran into all these problems a couple of years ago. So this is not new. Uh, you know, we we know what the problems are. The sun is really bright. That's one. So it's really hard to make a display that can defeat the sun, right? That's that, and then that's going to use up tons of power. So then you have a battery problem as well. Uh, but the connectivity, you know, in order to get an um, augmented reality overlay to register accurately, even as you're moving around, uh, and to keep it registered, that requires millimeter precise uh, uh, ability to to uh, you know to get to get that registration exactly correct. It means you have to have incredibly low latency network. It's a good use case for 5G, but that's not the 5G they're building in the United States right now. The 5G we're building is basically faster 4G. Uh, some people say we're, it's gonna we're gonna have to wait until 6G comes out, which is like at the end of the decade, like you know 2027 before we're gonna start to see that. So again, the this may be a long dawn for AR uh, in addition to VR. I think it's gonna happen. I think I, I'm with you. Like I'm excited about it. I can see the use case for it. Certainly, VR games are fun. Uh, that that can be incredibly immersive. And if you haven't used Tilt Brush or anyone who's listening hasn't used Tilt Brush, it's to me it's my favorite thing to do in VR because it's super creative and 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 talk about immersive. You know, you're, yeah. you can paint you can paint the world around you and move through it. I find that fascinating. So I think there's a lot more potential there that hasn't been tapped yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you see these things connecting together in social? Uh, and tell me a little bit of how social and immersive uh, 3D work together. Oh, yeah, it's definitely going to be merging in the very near future. I definitely believe so. I mean, just as we were saying before about TikTok and Pico, uh, we're going to be seeing these all across the platforms, especially, you know, obviously Meta and Horizon Worlds uh, not working out so well so far. But, um, yeah, this is where it's heading. I mean, uh, I I do believe that people want to have those more immersive experiences, just figuring out how, you know, what's the best way to get there. And, um, you know, for now, I think that there's kind of half and half, right? You know, there's half people that, um, you know, solely focus more on uh, the VR, AR, you know, side of things. And then there's people focus, focusing more on the social media side of things. So we're just bringing it all together now. Um, and, and yeah, there's some growing pains with it, but it's going to get better. It's going to get more lightweight, more connected. And you're, you're correct. You know, the, the, the connection 5G, uh, waiting for 6G, we're going to have to see how all this comes together, right? One of the things I've noticed is that the the companies that are touting themselves today as um, as you know kind of metaverse companies, uh, it's not just Meta. It includes some decentralized Web three companies like Decentraland, Sandbox, and others. Mm. Um, but what all these companies have done is they focused on business model first. Right. Uh, they're trying to build worlds that brands can exist in and can market in, which makes it feel a little bit like a shopping mall. Uh, they're trying to build worlds that you can do commerce in in some way. So that also starts to feel like a shopping mall in a way. Uh, or they're trying to create these kind of prefab experience parks, which to me feels a lot like Disneyland in VR. And what none of these things are, are focused on community first. Yes. Um, and you know we have a very good example right now of an immersive world that is successful, that focused first and foremost on community and monetization second. And of course, I'm referring to Second Life. And you know quite a little bit about that. What can these new VR platforms learn from Second Life? Oh, wow. You know, Second Life was just so innovative for its time, way ahead of its time, right? Some people call it like the original metaverse in a lot of ways, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because you could build your own worlds and have people go to your world and visit, or you can have your own private world. And um, as it says, as in the name, you live out a second life in this, Mm -hmm. in this experience. And, you know, there's something about it that hasn't quite translated into the virtual experiences that we're experiencing today. You know, um, there are things like alt space VR um, for Oculus that exist. Um, You know, VR chat was another uh, go (laughs) at uh, bringing community together. Uh, However, you know, you run into the issues, as we said in the beginning of the show, you know, um, people that go in with bad intentions and, you know, try to be silly and do bad things. So they're just trying to figure out like how to, um, you know, provide the best experience. Now, the thing with Second Life is that Second Life doesn't never really ran into these problems that we're seeing on social today, you know, with the harassment and, um, you know, it's, yeah, it's just a totally different experience. Now, I think because of that, it has has more of a game vibe to it. And it is more about the community solely, you know? Um, Now, Second Life does have monetization. People will 
make their own clothes and, and whatnot, yeah. their own avatars and sell it. And they do really well on it. It's the right? original so, creator economy. A hundred percent. It's a, it's the original creator community. Right. And, yeah. and it's thrived and people don't realize there's a million people using second life today. A million people. The thing is 20 years old um, versus yeah. there's no social platform or no VR social platform that can claim to have anything close to that. You know, 10% of that even uh, in terms of active monthly users. So it's really quite extraordinary that the, dur the durability of that, but there hasn't come along anybody who's got a better vision of it. I think a big part of that is it was built as community first uh, and they strive very hard in the product design to foster community. Okay, let's put on the futurist hat for a second and talk about 10 years from the future, 20 years in the future. Where is this all going? Where, what do you envision 20 years out? Oh, well, I mean, the big ultimate vision, right, is merging humans with technology, right? And sure. the thing is, right now, we're in the phase of the wearables, you know, we're going to be wearing, uh, you know, we're that's already happening now, we're wearing our smartwatches, wearing, you know, VR headsets, and soon AR headsets, and, um, you know, that that's the externalized version of it. But slowly, uh, over the next 10 to 20 years, particularly uh, definitely within 10 to 20 years, you know, these are going to become more embedded within us. And, you know, as a lot of the futurists like to talk about, ultimately, uh, you know, it's it's merging man and machine in some ways, but it's supposed to be um, bringing sort of uh, more like a superpower like ability to us. Right. It's supposed to be about connecting us, bringing us all together. Right. Mm -hmm. Will brain computer interfaces do this? You know, BCIs, um, it's hard to say. I mean, ultimately, it's the same things we're going to be experiencing now, but connected directly to our brain. Um, you know, that's that's kind of where it's heading is that it's going to be within us. You know, we'll have our own body sensors that are tracking, um, you know, how our body's doing, uh, you know, instead of going to the doctor. <laughs> if you know, people are time. worried about, if people are worried about these apps collecting a lot of data about us today, yeah. just imagine I, what happens when they can tap what's going on in your brain and your imagination and in your dreams as well. Oh boy. Mm -hmm. um, we try not to get dystopian on this show, but it's hard for me not to think that way. Uh, so we go with well, the growing pains. Do you see 10 years of growing pains or or do you see less time than that? I do see growing pains. I, I do see some growing pains. Um, however, I think there's going to be a lot of beautiful things to come out of technology as well. A, a real true, uh, more sense of togetherness, you know, bringing, making the world smaller, right? That's what social media did was made the world a lot smaller. You know, we can meet, make friends all over the world. And um, as these technologies start becoming embedded within us uh, on the go for whatever reasons, you know, whether it be uh, to overall have a better quality of life, uh, to have almost uh, telepathic abilities, through these uh, technologies, whether brain computer interfaces, whatnot. Um, but ultimately, I think that uh, it's hard to say. You know, it depends on what we as, you know, humanity want out of it, what we're fighting for, what we're striving for, what we desire, you know, uh, and what we what we allow, right? I mean, um, you know, the purpose of technology is to make our lives better, to bring us together, to make us connected, to give us opportunity, right? Uh, so as long as we focus on the positive and, you know, um, really discuss the ethical side of this, you know, that that's a really big part of it, right? Is that the ethics and, um, you know, what's best for humanity, period. That's the part and, of the story that I think isn't getting enough play right now. And I think it's the most interesting part of the story. As people are leaving big platforms, these big centralized platforms, particularly Facebook and Twitter, uh, where they're moving towards, it seems to me, is um, more fragmented, not as unified, smaller spaces where you can have better connections and better conversations. And so maybe this phase that's changing is this, this phase of like one person tweeting out to everybody in the universe. Maybe that's the thing that's going to change in the future. Maybe it won't be that, uh, that kind of huge reach. Instead, the future might be more fragmented, smaller, but richer communities. Well, uh, Katie King, thank you very much for being on The Futurist. It's a pleasure to chat with you. I've enjoyed this uh, survey of all the turmoil and change in the social media business and some of the future of VR and AR. All exciting stuff. Thank you very much for being here today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure and I look forward to coming back again sometime in the near future. That'll be great fun. So folks, thanks for listening. Um, before we roll off, I just want to let you know that uh, as uh, Brett usually says at the end of the show, um, 
That's it this week for The Futurists. If you've enjoyed listening to The Futurists, please do us a favor and give us a five-star review wherever you listen, Spotify, Apple, or anyplace else. Uh, That really helps other people discover it. And I want to say thank you and give a shout out to all the folks who've been giving us positive feedback, suggestions, and those reviews, because it turns out we are growing really, really fast now. So thank you very much for the support. And please keep supporting the show. Uh, This has been a great ride so far this year, and we continue to keep doing it in the new year. I want to thank our producer, Kevin Hirshhorn. I want to thank our other producer, Lisbeth Severins, and the whole crew at Provoke Media uh, for helping us make the show. You guys have been great, and it's been a pleasure working with all of you. Katie, thanks for joining the show this week. Um, I will see you in the future. Well, that's it for The Futurists this week. If you like the show, we sure hope you did. Please subscribe and share it with the people in your community. And don't forget to leave us a five-star review. That really helps other people find the show. And you can ping us anytime on Instagram and Twitter at, at Futurist Podcast for the folks that you'd like to see on the show or the questions that you'd like us to ask. Thanks for joining. And as always, we'll see you in the future.